Well, as we continue in worship this morning, if you would please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will look at verses 2 through 4 this morning. And a a sermon I've simply uh, titled, Be Encouraged. Um, We've come to a moment, chapter 7 of this letter, where Paul has received from Titus and correspondence that has been happening He addresses some good things, right? He is encouraged in these verses, and we'll read here in a moment, about what's happening in in Corinth. I know it always, I I feel like I'm a broken record every time I feel like I lead out with all the struggles and issues in Corinth, right? We have that line to some extent, but here Paul is uh, excited, and and it just, out of the gate, uh, one of the things that we need to grab hold of is uh, the reality of the importance of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, the reality of the importance of being uh, connected and faithful, right, to God's church. Um, Paul is no doubt dealing with uh, the pagan culture, and there are those coming out from this culture, and no doubt in, uh, here in America we are dealing with a, a growing pagan culture. And ever more so, we need each other, right, if we're going to stand separate from the world as we saw last week if we're going to grow in our holiness well then man i need brothers and sisters to encourage me Uh, paul never wavers in his dedication and his faithfulness to the gospel Uh, so we don't see him wavering but now he we we have this moment where there is a testimony Uh, there are good things there are those in the church who are um, who are staying the course right they're standing with paul to some extent and paul is immensely encouraged. I mean, he says he has joy. We'll read the passage here in a moment. In affliction. That almost sounds like an oxymoron, right? Joy and affliction. And this is what we receive from the church, even though we go through difficult, difficult things. We receive encouragement. Uh, Paul is encouraged from their response. Um, we see this in verses 6 and 7 of Titus coming back to Paul and giving a report. So for us, we have to realize, hey, Uh, You don't get to pick and choose who's in the family of God, right? You don't get to pick and choose who comes to church. That's not your business, right? But it is our our business to love one another, to be encouraged and to encourage one another to be separate from the world and to follow after Christ, right? To understand the gospel. There was a pastor who one time after he preached a, a sermon and found a little verse that someone had written on a piece of paper and left it in the pew. And the verse simply said this, to dwell above with saints in love, oh my, that will be glory. To dwell below with the saints we know, now that's a different story. Well, I hope for us as we, as we look at this passage, you, you would be encouraged. Um, it's not going to be easy to stand against the culture. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul has told us uh, in, in chapter 6, God's commands, right? Be separate, come out, imperative verbs. You don't get to qualify that away and say, well, that's for others or that's for church leadership or that's for, no, that's you, that's me, right? And we're, we're to labor in this and we're, and Paul even tells us with the right motivation, we are to perfect holiness, right? In the fear of the Lord. And that's what we're called to do. We are to be a church that is out from the culture. That's our reality. That's where we're going, 
We're not always good at that. We struggle with that, but we're going to continue to move forward. And so Paul, with all the things that he's written with this church, turns around and he finds that there are some fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord who are serious about their faith. He is encouraged. I pray for us this morning that we would be encouraged as we labor with one another, as we pursue right sanctification. So Paul says this, chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, he says, Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that, you know, before that, you were... Uh, you are, excuse me, in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Amen. Let me offer a brief prayer. Father, as we look at this text uh, this morning... I ask that your spirit would be here and be with us. I pray that you would ignite us, Lord, to realize um, what we have in Christ and to realize also, Lord, um, how we are to support and help and encourage one another as we pick up the cross and follow Jesus as we work out our sanctification. Lord, let us be uh, encouraged. Let us realize we have brothers and sisters who will stand with us. And Father, as always, get me out of the way that we would receive what you have for us today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question, right, as we look at this passage. What can we do, right, as brothers and sisters? Paul has said, look, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, there is this wonderful word called adoption. Right? We're born into sin, we're born into the family of Adam, but if you know Jesus Christ, you have been adopted, you have been plucked out of that family and placed in a new family. That's the language of Scripture. And Paul has, has not uh, lost sight of that. Right? He has told us in verse 18 of chapter 6, as grabbing from the Old Testament, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Right? There is the, the wonderful element of adoption. Christ has adopted us. He is our elder brother. So the question is, how do we as brothers and sisters build a culture in the church of encouragement? Right? I mean, of all places here, I believe there should be a joy in the Christian. There should be a joy of our salvation. Right? Some things are difficult in seasons of life and things that we endure and sins that we battle. Yeah, there is, a, there is real effort that is necessary to be separate from the world. Uh, wouldn't it be great if we just said, hey, you know, we prayed this prayer and Jesus has redeemed my soul and he's full, I'm full of his spirit and I'm just automatically separate. I don't struggle with those sins anymore. Wouldn't that be great, right? Am I the only one who thinks that's good? Yes, that's what I thought, right? But Paul is saying, look, be separate. Not separate when you prayed that prayer or you repented of your sins in that moment of of coming to Jesus and knowing him as Lord and Savior. He's saying right now, present tense, be separate. That's the context that, that he is writing about his heart being full, his heart loving them, right? He's saying right now, be separate. So how are we going to build a culture in the church where we need his spirit? Absolutely. We need to understand God's holiness. Yeah, we've got the fear and right reverence of God. We have to understand God's answer to our sin problem. We have to understand the gospel, 
right? And we need to remind each other often of those things. We need to encourage one another. Hey, you're not an accident. Christ has spilt precious blood for your soul. And if that's the case, live like it. The greatest call in all the world, I believe, right, is to be separated unto God. Our greatest need is reconciliation. Every soul that's born, that soul's greatest need is to be reconciled to the Creator. God's greatest gift is reconciliation in Christ Jesus. I believe wholeheartedly that as we grow in our sanctification, we can have a wonderful present tense assurance of Christ dwelling in us. That we can understand what it means to be sons and daughters of the King. That wonderful word of adoption. I believe we can live with confidence and it can propel us forward. I also realize that there are times in our life where we may struggle with that thought. We may look upon a situation of our life and go, well, you know, I just don't know. Did, did he really redeem me? Did he really save me? I believe that's the walk of every believer. And what that thought should bring us to back to Calvary. Back to Calvary. John Calvin would say, when I look upon my life, I doubt the Savior has anything to do with me. But when I look at the cross, I am convinced he loves me. See, for us, is we're going to be a church that is separate and take seriously this pursuit of holiness because God has commanded it. We don't want to treat God's word as this, some suggestions. In our men's study on Saturday morning, we covered, uh, well, we attempted to, we actually covered one word. I know it sounds horrible, but uh, when, when James calls us out as adulteresses, we spent some time in explaining what does that mean to, to turn from God and to turn to the world. Spiritual, I think in the church today, there is, uh, the church is spiritually anemic. Why? Because we keep imbibing the world and thinking we're going to get some different outcome. Paul is, or excuse me, yeah, Paul is saying here that there is, there is no imbibing of the world and saying, you know what, we can still be Christians. He's saying, no, you have to actually separate from this, and it's not a suggestion. So how do we, how do we grow that question? How do I help you? How do I encourage you to say, hey, hey, stand with me in this, and I'll stand with you? Because Paul has written a lot of difficult things. Paul has taken a lot of whippings from this, these people, and yet here he is encouraged. Well, the first thing I put in your notes is in, we encourage one another through patience and forgiveness. We're going to need it, right? He says, make room for us in your hearts. Right? Paul is, is saying this in verse 2, but it jumps back right to verse 11 of chapter 6. Right? He, he began that whole section of being separate and called out. He began with saying, my, my heart is open to you. Right? So now as he's talked about separation, that's our context of being separate, of being holy, he comes back and says, make room, brothers, sisters, make room for me in your heart. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. Of course you didn't, right? So I, but here, right, a church that is going to be separate, a church that's going to love one another, encourage one another in this pursuit of holiness is a church that's going to have grace for one another. Right? I mean, the last place we want to be is looking down the point of our nose at our brothers and going, well, you should have got that right. Sister, oh my goodness. Right? Now there's a sense we want to call people out of sins if they're stuck, absolutely, but we want to have grace. We want to be marked by grace, love, and patience for one another. <clears throat> Paul is simply saying, hey, come, 
uh, or make room for me in your hearts, right? I don't, I don't want resentment. I don't want rejection. Does anyone want that? No, of course not. But we do want fellowship in the body. I think it's a horrible testimony if people come to church and they feel that they're judged more harshly at church than in the world. Now, again, if there's sin, we have to deal with that. We're not really loving anyone if we endorse sin. But you have to pause for a moment and go, man, in the church today, would Paul actually be welcomed? Would you welcome Paul? Can you imagine him sending some emails around, right? He's not writing letters, and he's got some emails floating around. Maybe he has a podcast going. I don't know. Uh, but would he be welcomed in your life? This guy saying, look, come and stand with me in our pursuit of holiness. I mean, this logically follows. He's saying, look, here is, here is the call that God has placed on you. He's, I mean, Paul is saying, he's placed it on me. Come out from the world, right? Live separate. He's not saying that, that we just simply divorce the world, any of that. We covered that last Sunday. He's not saying that. You're in the world. You're not to be of it. The world system is not to be part of your thinking. Our, our eyes are to be fixed on our Savior. Our, our worship is to be directed to God and Him alone, right? This is the call and the direction of a Christian. So Paul is simply saying to these Corinthians, will you, will you love me as a brother and sister? For him, a brother, right? As sisters in the Lord and brothers in the Lord, as a family of God, he's saying, as a brother, would you accept me? Paul is serious about perfecting holiness, right? We, too, should be serious about perfecting holiness. We should be drawing closer and helping each other do that. As he told us, right, if God is dwelling with his people and his spirit is at work, then there is no room for satanic characteristics. That's his word, Biel, right? So there's no place for that. In our hearts, we've been adopted. We are changed. And so Paul says, look, open your hearts to me. Be patient as I am patient with you. Be loving as I am loving with you. Have forgiveness for each other. Let's grow in this. And then he simply he, he affirms this. He almost like gives them reasons, even beyond Christ. Beyond Calvary, he says, he comes with them with three denials. He says, we wronged nobody, right? You see this sense of the relationship. He's having to defend himself. I've corrupted, I've taken advantage of no one. So we know Paul hasn't done that. If you've been following along with any of this, right? We know who he was before Christ. We know what Christ worked in him. We know the change in his life. We know he's not perfect, but we know he's not doing those things. So clearly there is some misunderstandings, right? There is some interpreting of his life and decisions that have been happening, and some people haven't liked it for various reasons. So Paul comes forward, right? These three verbs are kind of synonymous. They're past tense. Clearly he's referencing something. But what about us? What do we need to learn? Do we want to jump into these things and we want to say, hey, what's, what's our takeaways? Well, I think as, as you look at these words, the first one says, we wrong no one. I put in your notes, we should keep working on our relationships. That seems so common, doesn't it? It's so easy, so straightforward, but how many of us justify being offended because somebody said something I just didn't like? Reminds me of the joke of a gentleman on a desert island, three huts. When he finally gets rescued, the rescuer says, tell me about your huts. First hut is where I live. Wow, this is a great dwelling. Second hut, well, this is my church. Got an outstanding church building here, brother. What's that third hut? Oh, that's where I used to go to church. 
by himself on an island. He had a church split, right? How often do we do that as brothers and sisters and we, we, we trash the testimony of our Savior? We trash the, the testimony of reconciliation. Paul has many opportunities, have you not noticed, to say, you, you guys aren't just going to get it. You're not going to get it. He doesn't drop the, 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 the apostle title, right? So I'm, the, I'm, I'm Paul, do you not realize who I am? Right? Even though he's going to address those things, he has to defend himself. But yet, this word has to do with like a financial harming of injustice or a physical injustice. And clearly, Paul isn't doing this. There is a misunderstanding. And there is something that people have rubbed wrong about Paul, or he's rubbed them wrong. And so they're going to hold on to this. But Paul isn't yielding, is he? Simple application we see of our Savior teach in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount. If we are wrong, lay down your sacrifice. Go make it right with your brother and your sister. Too often we give in and give up on relationships within the church. I didn't like what they did. I didn't like what he preached. I didn't like what they said. Whatever it might be. The second thing, in case you're wondering about sometimes when we should, he says we've corrupted no one. I say we should keep our doctrine sound. Right? We're not going to compromise. I think this is one of the problems in the modern church is to simply imbibe the world and thus they don't really have a message to the world. And so we must not compromise sound doctrine. There are moments, maybe in situations, where we have to say we have to depart because we're not going to treat the Bible as simply just, hey, this is a suggestion. Right? If we profess Christ, there are rules, right? There are, there are commands, rather, in Scripture that command how we act, how we live, how we are to treat one another. We're going to be obedient. So Paul, the word, entails some type of morally or doctrinal concern. And Paul is simply saying, I did not come and doctrinally corrupt anybody. I mean, he has planted this church, right, on Christ and him crucified. That has been his message. And Paul has told them, I didn't come with a bunch of, of fancy speech. Right? I didn't come with all those other trappings that other speakers have. I came with the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's never wavered in this, ever. And even in this situation, he continues to what? Never waver on the doctrine. He doesn't waver on the gospel. So we're not to cast aside truth for the sake of unity. We must come together in unity under God's truth. So in our encouragement, right, it's encouraging brothers and sisters to understand the gospel, right? To understand who God is. What does his word say about who he is? What does it say about who we are? It says a lot of things about you and me, a lot of things we probably wouldn't like, but they're true. The last point here, I think, our sub-point here is keep your conscience clear, right? We want to we approach our relationships. The, the word here is def, uh, defrauding someone, right? When he says, I don't want to didn't take advantage of anybody. Didn't defraud anyone. I mean, Paul's testimony is clear. His, his commitment to Christ has been faithful. He has been a faithful representative, right? He hasn't wavered in this. We talked last week about a righteous testimony. When those rise up against you and say, hey, this and that about this person, they can say, you know what? I know that person. Unless that person is radically changed, those things just simply aren't true. Why? Because there's a testimony. They're faithful to Christ. Paul has been faithful. The Corinthians know they can't come back and say these things. But how often in our lives is some type of misinterpretation of a motive of a person or something, right? It just we, we lends us to go, well, I just, I don't know, I don't like this, and we'll give in, give up, and quit. 
But Paul's conscience is clear. You can't make others come. You can't make them right? Be obedient to Christ. And so we have to have this element of being free with our conscience. He has told them already in chapter 1, verse 12, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. Right? Paul knows, I haven't done any of these things. I have a righteous testimony. You know this. You know, another example of this in the Old Testament is a moment when Gideon pursued the Midianites and he, he tracked them across the Jordan, went after them. And in the moment of the campaign, this is in Judges chapter 8, the moment of the campaign, for some reason, he didn't call on uh, those of Ephraim, the Ephraimites, right? The tribe of Ephraim. And so when he returned from this great victory that God has done, well, he comes to the men of Ephraim and they're not, they're not happy about this. In one sense, you're kind of like, yeah, there's some, there's some manly men, right? Why don't you call on us? We want to jump in this battle. So they confront him in Judges 8.1. It says, uh, what is this thing you have done to us? They're calling out Gideon, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian. And they contended with him vigorously. How come you didn't call us? Man, they're upset at Gideon. Gideon knows some things about wisdom. He knows something about a soft word. Listen to his response. He says, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then it says, then their anger towards him subsided when he said that. I mean, what does Gideon do? It's just what Paul is doing. He's working through the relationship. He's working it, not giving in, not giving up. He's keeping the doctrine sound. Look what, what God has done. He's completed this. His conscience is clear. What have I actually done? What was I able to do? See, the point of this is, is there's always going to be Corinthians in your life. There's always going to be those of Ephraim. Even though you do something good, there's going to be others who are going to get upset, get offended. We shouldn't respond by saying, well, you know what? i do it again this way without you, right? That's not the response. Patience, forgiveness, understanding, work our relationship. Keep the doctrine sound. Look what God is doing. The conscience should be clear. So as we see this, right, encouraging one another is be patient. Our forgiveness, right? We've experienced that at the cross. Let's have it for each other. The second point here in verse 3 is simply this. Encourage one another through sacrificial love. Absolutely. We notice here that Paul begins by saying, I do not speak to condemn you. Paul, no doubt, is responding to what he just said. He goes on and says, For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. We are, right, again, brothers, sisters in this struggle against our flesh, against the world, to be separate from the world, to be growing in the fear of God, we're picking up that cross. We're going to need patience and forgiveness for one another. But Paul now, from this general sense of patience and forgiveness, he makes it a little bit more intimate. He switches, if you notice, from first person plural in verse 2 to first person singular. It's no longer we now it's I. 
the personal note. He's strengthening the relationship. He's working the relationship. He's overlooking many insults. He's extending, right, a real love, sacrificial love. He addresses and says, I, I do not speak to condemn you. Paul has said some true things, hard things maybe for them to hear, but he responds by saying, I'm not doing this to condemn you. You know, often, again, we can misinterpret that. People can be upset. You can imagine the Corinthians responding to something like that, saying, when did we ever say this? When did we ever say you wronged someone? We never said you corrupted anybody. No, we, never, we didn't do that. That's the reality. They may try to say that, but, but this is, this is the, the, the thing that Paul is dealing with. Hey, I didn't say these things to condemn you. It's not my goal to alienate you. I want to avoid that at all costs. And then he reaffirms them, and he simply says, but I've said before, you're in our hearts. He has told us that in chapter 3, verse 2, you are our letter written on our hearts. So told us that in chapter 6, verse 11, our hearts are open wide to you. And again, after talking about separation, his heart is open. He does not withhold his affection. If anyone, again, could say, hey, there's some, some, uh, some reasons here. You can, you can walk away and be stubborn and go, well, I'm not going to love those folks. They're kind of crazy, right? Think of everything Paul's been through. Look at the grace. Look at the mercy. Look at the love that he has. And Paul knows something about the importance of the church. James chapter 2, verse 8 says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. I think Paul is doing really well, isn't he? Full of grace and mercy, full of patience for them, forgiveness, love. I mean, what a great response. I mean, think about it. Have you ever loved someone just as you've loved yourself? I mean, think about a church that would love that way. Think about the difference that we see in our culture, what a, how radically different it would be. And, and Paul goes really another step here, and he goes and says, you know what, my love for you is to die with you and to live together with you. These Corinthians, this group of people, I would, I would die with you and I would live with you. I mean, Paul, who has written clearly, Romans chapter 8, has brought this into us, right? There's nothing separates us from the love of Christ. Thus, there's nothing separates us from our brothers and sisters. Death does not sever our relationship. Circumstances don't sever it. It is a lasting and enduring love. It is about being adopted into God's family. See, it's something bigger than simply our relationship horizontally is happening. Paul vertically understands redemption. He understands the blood spilt for these Corinthians. I mean, he's listed his hardships, right? He's cataloged them for us. Doubt his love and his concern for the churches. Read chapter 11 of this letter. But the point is, Paul would rather die with the Corinthians than renounce them. Well, that's sacrificial. John Calvin, speaking of this passage, says, Notice that this is how all pastors ought to feel. I agree. We need to grow in this. But it's not only for pastors. I believe it is every Christian should feel this way. Do you feel this way? Are you so understanding of what God has done in Christ for you that it compels you to look upon others as the same blood that was spilt? 
that compels you to die with them. I mean, John took this. I mean, John in his letter, first letter of John 3.16, he says, we know love this way. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life. You ought to, to lay down your lives for your brothers. He means that literally. Hey, think about our brothers and sisters around the globe today. Many are laying down their lives literally for the gospel. Think about history. Think about our heroes of the faith. This is not uncommon. So for us to say, hey, well, I'm going to die with this group of people, well, then I've got to move past a superficial love to a sacrificial one. The church is a little bit more, right, than just a group of people get together on a Sunday. It's a lot more. It's going to take honesty. It's going to take being vulnerable. It's going to take, right, saying hard things, loving each other, moving forward. It's going to take working a relationship. It's going to take patience and forgiveness. It's going to take never compromising God's word, but bringing us under, reforming it under his word, right? And Paul says, look, if that's an overwhelming thought, he says, look, I'm ready to die and to live. Have you noticed that when we, when we, we don't speak it that way, he switched the words, didn't he? We kind of have this moment of saying, well, we live, I'll live with you into the point of death. But Paul's not saying that. What is Paul hinting at? Why does he start with death and then life? He gives us insight into what it means to live sacrificially. He connects it right back to Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, as, a, as your brother, right? I, I will separate and die to the world, and I will separate unto the Lord. I will stand with you. When the world comes crashing down and we stand for Christ, and at that moment, if the world takes our lives, I will be standing right next to you. I will die with you. Thus, I will live with you. Paul told them, chapter 5, verse 15, Christ died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Here's the secret to sacrificial loving the church. It's knowing Christ. See, as we pick up the cross and follow this amazing Savior, your love will naturally grow for your brothers and sisters. We could probably honestly say your commitment to to the church demonstrates your commitment to Christ. You cannot love Christ and not love his church. You, You have solidarity with Christ. You begin to realize he has spilt blood for my brothers and sisters. Why would I not be with them? This is Paul's thinking. It's as if he's, he's vertically looking at Christ and then looking down at this church and he says, regardless of all the insults, regardless of all the hardships, regardless of all the whips and the beatings and the suffering that I've endured, my concern is for those who know Christ as Lord. How can he have joy and affliction where you're getting an insight of it right here? He loves, sacrificially loves them. Now I know not all love is equal. There is a counterfeit. There are many today who simply come and say, well, you know, we assemble on Sunday, and that's the extent of it. Well, yeah, you should assemble. That's good. That's obedience. That's part of it. It's not all of it. We have to get into each other's lives. I mean, think about it. Men come together in battlefields to do what? To kill everyone, right? I mean, gangs come together to rob everyone. Political parties and platforms that come together to what? To oppose. We can come together and still be in opposition, Jonathan Edwards, in 
writing on revival, he talks about Christian love as a humble love. Love and humility are two things that are most contrary to the spirit of the devil and anything in the world. He says, for the character of the evil spirit, above all things, consists in pride and malice. For us, right, there is a humility. Coming to Calvary begins there. Seeing upon the Lord Jesus our sin, that he would call me a son, that he would redeem my soul, that he would not just simply love me in this present moment in this life, but he would love me eternally. All those, right, who are redeemed by Christ will be eternally loved by the Father. That's the reality. And Paul is simply saying, right, I will die with you. Thus, I will live with you. If you think of this message and the situation in which America finds itself, you can see the need. I can imagine uh, people going through life without being connected to the Lord's people on earth. I always wonder in times when I've done funerals where those who are outside of the Lord are thinking, how do you walk through this without having others surround you who are in the Lord? God, in his providence, at one point in my life, I, did, uh, I preached a funeral in the morning one day, and then I, I drove across town and sang some hymns at another one. And the morning, uh, the morning funeral that I preached, I was allowed 15 minutes. I wanted nothing to do with God. And it was sad. And I tried my best to point him to Christ. Here's hope and healing. Here's where it's at. I drove across town and led some hymns of a saint who had gone to be with the Lord. What a difference. And one day to experience that. Why would we go without loving the church? Right? Why would we go? It's as if we're not loving Christ. Paul has sacrificial love for them. See, Paul is not going to be defined by their rejection. He's not going to be defined by their misinterpretation. He's not going to be defined, right, of all the things that he's worked through and all these peddlers of the Word of God and all these false teachers. He doesn't yield, doesn't give in. He doesn't compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is defined by his loyalty to Jesus and his love for Jesus' church. My last point here this morning is simply this, right, as we... As we're encouraged, we encourage one another with patience, forgiveness, sacrificial love. We need those things. We need accountability. And the last thing, word of encouragement to one another is, man, exchange words of mission. Right? Remember and remind each other, why are we here? He says in verse 4, great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Again, it sounds like an oxymoron. How is Paul filled with comfort and joy and affliction? Again, he knows, right? Something about redemption. He knows God's grace. He knows the calling on his life. He understands the Great Commission. He understands where he's going, what he's doing. And he knows he has brothers and sisters who are on the same page with him. He has others who understand what Christ has done and what Christ has called them to. Yeah, if we get into that and we get around those kinds of folks, right, we understand we can endure a lot of hardships. I have those who will stand with me. Titus in verse 6 and 7 has returned to Paul. He's gone to Corinth and he's brought information back to Paul. This is what Paul is addressing. 
And so what do we receive, right? If, if we have answering that question of what it looks like, right? What is the culture of a bunch of people who are adopted, right, by, through Christ into God's family, who understand this, who are on mission together, what do we receive from that? Well, I believe there's some confidence. This is my first sub-point here. Uh, That's what Paul is saying. Great is my confidence. How does he come to this moment of saying, uh, you know, you Corinthians kind of in essence, right, drive me crazy, and now he is confident. He understands, right? There is a report of good things. There are other brothers and sisters, and the, the Legacy Standard Bible says, great is my boldness toward you. This is one of the things that we uh, definitely can have confidence in. We can encourage, we can strengthen one another. We can speak openly. We have others who will hear. We can trust. Hey, I have a prayer request. I can trust you. I can speak openly with you about it. I can entrust this to you. I mean, for Paul, this comes back to the element of of being entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has taken that gospel and entrusted it to this church, the Corinthians. There are those who have taken that and right and have been entrusting it to others. It is growing. Right? The same is for us today. You, by the Spirit of God, have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has placed it in your care. And he is saying as a church and as members of his church and as uh, sons and daughters of his family, entrust that gospel to others. Live it out, speak it loudly, right? That is what he's calling you to do. Being separate means you're going to look different from the world. That's okay. There's going to be questions. Why are you different than the world? Let me tell you about the hope that's in me. Paul has confidence. I got some others, right? We're part of the Lord's army. He also goes on, I believe we get supplied with a positive testimony. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Isn't that what we see in Paul's letters, writing about the churches? I mean, I think Paul would have, would have said anyone down, let me tell you about what's going on in Corinth. I mean, that's his excitement. There were, there were some hardships, there were some difficulties, but man, I, there is good things happening. Let me tell you about them. He writes about all the churches. I mean, now he's, he's sensing that there are some here who are going, you know what? We're going to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're going to love uh, our neighbor as ourself. I've got something to write about. I'm sure for Paul there were moments of thinking, I don't know if they're going to pull this out. God's spirit, right, is good. God is good. So I believe we're, we're encouraged with a positive testimony. Can you imagine uh, sharing your testimony with someone, sharing the gospel with someone, and then inviting them to a church that you're not too thrilled about? Well, I don't know how they're going to treat them. Well, how horrible is that? No, we should be around those who are full of grace. Why? Because, man, I have received so much grace from my Lord. I have grace and patience and love, a sacrificial love. We also are supplied with comfort. That's what Paul is saying, right? Again, remember, it's in the context of, of affliction. I mean, this kind of adds to the testimony. But he's told them in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Right? Their, their response to Paul, their, their uh, or rather Titus's report, you could say it that way, I mean, has, has encouraged Paul. 
is comforted with this. And then lastly, I simply say we're supplied with God's grace. He says, I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Affliction here is singular, not plural. Paul, even though it's all our affliction, he is referencing something very specific, most likely their relationship. I can imagine him just wondering, what is Titus going to say? He receives good news. He is encouraged. The anxiety goes away. There are folks there who, who are on mission. In the midst of this affliction, this, this fear, this doubt, there is God's sufficient grace. This is at work. Paul's work, maybe he thought, it's not in vain. Right? I planted this church. I'm not sure it's going to make It's going to make it by God's grace. So we can be encouraged. See, the Lord calls us to difficult things. But he supplies us with his spirit in which to do that, to be separate from the world, to come out, to, to be obedient, to stand against right, the worldly influence and things that are all around us, to say, no, I'm not going to partake in that. I'm going to follow after the Lord. I've set my eyes upon Christ as I run this race. I take seriously the first commandment that says, have no other gods before him and him alone. Oh, well, I want to be around a bunch of people on the same, the same desire, the same passion. That patience and forgiveness and love for each other, those who understand why we're here. Despite the difficulty, despite the cultural upheaval, despite the rejection of Christ, despite even things where Christianity now in America is considered a toxic religion. We're going to stand for truth. I'm going to be encouraged when I have other brothers and sisters who will stand with me, full of grace, full of mercy. Spurgeon said, little faith will bring our souls to heaven, but great faith, great faith will bring heaven to us. I believe there's, a, there's a, an element of enjoying the fellowship of heaven on earth in the Lord's church. And we simply say, brothers, sisters, help me follow after the Lord. I will stand with you and help you too. But patience and grace for each other, forgiveness for one another, grow past a superficial love to a sacrificial one. To realize that Christ has spilt blood for me. He has redeemed me. He's redeemed you. We can be encouraged. I began this sermon by saying to dwell above with saints in love. Oh my, that would be glory to dwell below with saints we know. Right? It would be a different story, but it's our story. It's who we are. It's what God has done. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, your grace to us. Every single one of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have received grace from you. Grace that is truly amazing. We do not deserve. We cannot earn. We cannot make ourselves right with you. But you so loved this world, you gave Jesus, your only Son. Father, we thank, we just simply say thank you. Thank you for loving us this way. Thank you for providing salvation in Christ and him alone. And I pray, Lord, today that every soul here would be encouraged. You have called us to do hard things, to combat, Lord, the remaining sin in our lives, to pick up a cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. 
You've called us, Lord, to work out our sanctification with fear and trembling, all the while trusting that you are at work in us. Lord, there's, there's situations of life we walk through where it feels like you're far away. And I pray, as always, Lord, bring us to that moment of being mindful that you are the ever-present God. You will not leave us nor forsake us. And in the moments of difficulty and uncertainty, Lord, bring us to Calvary. Let us realize that we are adopted. Lord, you are the Lord Almighty. You have all the power necessary to bring about, Lord, a complete healing and redemption in us. You take the heart of the stone and replace it with a heart that beats after you. This is why James can say our faith is living, not dead. So Lord, I pray for us. It would be encouraged to live this life, the difficulties, the the valley moments and the mountaintops, Lord, may we do it together as a church, leaning upon each other, encouraging one another, having patience and forgiveness for one another, never compromising your word, but calling and challenging each of us, Lord, to come under the authority of your word, to be obedient to it. Lord, let us grow in our love for each other, just as Christ has loved us. Let us love your church. Then, Lord, let us be full of words of mission, knowing why we're here, that we'll be encouraged as we share our faith. Just as Paul is encouraged, despite Lord, difficulties, Lord, we know you're at work. And we thank you, Lord. May our, our hearts be full of praise that it would come out of our lips and out of our life for who you are, what you've done, and what you're doing in us. Make us, Lord, that church full of your grace, full of your mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.